You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Despite early hopes that the reclaimed Everglades would prove ideal for small-scale farms, the Everglades Agricultural Area, EAA, became the home of large-scale commercial agriculture. Government policy played an active role in this outcome. And the success of Everglades agriculture was firmly grounded in indirect government subsidies. In large measure, government subsidies account for the expansion of sugarcane growing in the EAA. Every attempt by the residents of the Everglades to finance effective water control failed. Only after the federal government intervened and spread the cost of water control works to taxpayers outside the district was Everglades agriculture able to prosper. Although this intervention did not favor sugar growers more than other farmers in the district, other federal programs did. The H-2 program provided the sort of easily controlled labor pool that sugar growers wanted. Similarly, federal price supports for domestic sugar ensured that cane, once cut, would yield a guaranteed profit. Taken together, these federal programs created the sugar growers' land, provided them with reliable labor, and guaranteed their profits. David McCauley, The Everglades, An Environmental History. Now, it's been a long time since you've heard from me. I've had a lot going on, but welcome to this episode 143 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Rise of the Kane Kingdom, Part 1. Of course, Kane spelled C-A-N-E in reference to sugar cane. And yes, you heard me right. Part 1, I decided to split this into a two-parter. It was just getting too big. Too big and overwhelming and would have taken me forever to record and edit and upload, and it's already been a long time since the last DHP episode, so I decided, nah, I gotta cut this into a two-parter. 
Sorry it's been so long since my last episode. Uh, there's been a lot going on in my world. For starters, this episode has been, or this now two-part series on the rise of the heavily government-subsidized sugarcane kingdom in South Florida. This has been surprisingly, ridiculously uh, research-intensive for me. It really has been. I mean, I've been putting in huge amounts of hours that you know, you never see. And just, you know, delving into all these different books and articles and composing copious amounts of notes and figuring out what to leave in, what to leave out, how to organize everything. I mean, it's it's just been extremely complicated. And when I started working on this, intending it to be a single episode, I did not really wrap my head around what a big, intense story it was. And in addition to that, I've been out of town, it seems like more often than not, over the course of July. I was up in North Carolina for, I don't know, over a week, then got back and then did two smaller trips to other parts of Florida. And it's just been, I I feel like I haven't even had much of a summer vacation yet because I've been so damn busy. And then in addition to that, I've been playing Mother Teresa. My wife has had a whole bunch of medical problems going on in last few months, including recently a surgery, which is proving to be more of a problem recovering from it than we expected. And so I've been also doing Mother Teresa duties at the same time as I've been spending copious amounts of time working behind the scenes on Rise of the Cane Kingdom. So finally got to a point where I said, all right, I can at least record part one. So this is what you're listening to now. Real quick, though, some thank yous, some shout-outs before we delve into the episode. First off, um, wonderful folks who have signed up to support the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon over the past however long it's been, three, four weeks since the last regular DHP episode. So big thanks to David, Ryan, Eric, Mike, another David, B.A., Scott, and Philip. Thanks very much to all of you for signing up to support the Dangerous History Podcast via patreon.com slash profcj. And uh, Amazon shout out to longtime friend and supporter of the show, Ken, for ordering me two books off my Amazon wish list. The two books he ordered me are both on a guy who I think is a pretty strong contender for worst president in American history. And that, of course, is... Woodrow Wilson. So Ken got me Wilson by Scott Berg and Woodrow Wilson by H.W. Brands, which are going to be two of the probably, I'm sure, many more books and articles that I'll be consulting on good old Woody prior to sometime in a few months or so doing my DHP villains hit piece on Woodrow Wilson, which I already did one on Colonel House who, to a fair extent, seems to have been Wilson's handler and puppet master. But I think Wilson himself is a guy with enough problems that I can do a whole nother DHP villains feature on him. So anyway, thanks, Ken, for those books. Now, this episode on the rise of the Kane Kingdom, or what's going to be now two episodes on this, it may seem like an odd choice to you, perhaps it doesn't, but it might. So I wanted to just mention a little bit of why I wanted to do this episode. Or these episodes. And aside from the fact that I at least think this is an interesting story, and I hope you will too once you've heard it, I think it's an important one, and one that very few people know. No, the so-called sugar barons, the 
wealthy individuals that benefit um, from U.S. government sugar policies and various sorts of subsidies. The sugar barons are probably not the worst people in the kind of U.S. government crony corporate nexus. I think there's an extremely strong case that the military-industrial complex type people are actually worse. And maybe even some other non-military uh, type corporate crony characters, perhaps, are even worse than the sugar barons. So I, I'm not arguing that these are like the worst people ever, though there's certainly plenty bad. They're not even the biggest agricultural mooters, I don't think. I think probably corn would be the top agricultural commodity there as far as various types of government programs to just basically give them corporate welfare. But the sugar barons certainly are in many ways bad dudes, and some of them at least are almost like bad stereotypes of evil businessmen straight out of some Oliver Stone movie. And this story really is, I think, an interesting case study, an interesting single example of, in the real historical world, a lot of the key concepts in my understanding of history, particularly things having to do with the nexus of economics and politics at the power elite level and also working its way down through the bureaucracies. So just a few sort of concepts, theories, terms, etc. that I've talked about before at various times on the show that I think this series is going to illustrate specific, concrete, real-world examples of this stuff happening in real life are things like public choice theory, the revolving door, rent-seeking, the power elite as kind of a real historical and sociological phenomenon, a way to analyze things. And just in general, an illustration of the state serving elite special interests at the expense of kind of the people at large in the name of some sort of vague notion of the common good. It's also a wonderful illustration of what historian Burton Folsom describes as political entrepreneurship in his important little book I've mentioned before on this show, The Myth of the Robber Barons. Now, just really briefly, if you don't recall or haven't listened to episodes where I've spoken about this before and you're not familiar with this concept, Folsom differentiates between two basic types of entrepreneurs in economic history. And one is the market entrepreneur. And the market entrepreneur is the entrepreneur who succeeds entirely by successfully competing on the free competitive marketplace. A market entrepreneur becomes successful just by providing whoever his customers are, whether it's consumers or other businesses, he provides them with whatever good or service they want to buy at a price they're willing to pay, and in such a manner that he also makes a profit. It's done entirely through voluntary means and through what most people would consider kind of fair play. By contrast, then, there's the political entrepreneur. And the political entrepreneur, a large degree, or perhaps in some cases even all, of whatever success and profits he may reap is due to a significant extent from various types of government favors, whether outright subsidies, bailouts, um, protection from competition, either through cartelization internally and or from keeping out or limiting foreign competitors from competing with them for American market share. Various types of handouts, privileges, bailouts, in extreme cases even guaranteed monopolies. In less extreme cases, various types of cartelization agreements that limit competition. And Folsom 
uses various examples in Myth of the Robber Barons to illustrate this. Perhaps most famously, he talks about steamboats, and he talks about Western railroads, where you had these political entrepreneur-type companies that usually were not very well run, not very profitable, didn't provide the best goods or services. And then you would have market entrepreneurs who would do a much better job and would make a profit while at the same time offering better stuff at a lower price to consumers. So anyway, when you look at how the sugar growers, especially the larger sugar growers in Florida sugar operate, to me, it's clearly a case of political entrepreneurship. Now, aside from all that, this story really does matter, especially in the past few generations. And the reason is because Florida is now and has been, I think, for a few years, the third largest state in the U.S. It has overtaken New York, which used to be three and is now four. And the only two states that have more people than Florida within them are number one, California, and number two, Texas. And of course, very unlikely that Florida will ever overtake either of those two states because they're both so much larger in terms of landmass. So the fact that Florida is now the third most populous state in the U.S. matters in a huge way in terms of who gets nominated by the major parties and also frequently plays a key role in who wins when we're talking about the presidency. And it also means that Florida is number three in terms of membership in the House of Representatives. And what makes Florida particularly important in presidential elections is it's the only one of the four largest states in the U.S. that is really a swing state in presidential elections, because, of course, number one, California, and number four, New York, they go consistently and overwhelmingly Democrat in presidential elections. Whereas number two, Texas, goes consistently and pretty overwhelmingly Republican in presidential elections. So Florida, number three, can often go either way and often is won by razor-thin margins, as we all know, in presidential elections in the last couple decades. And Big Sugar, as they're often called, gives big money to candidates who will scratch their back. Just... For a recent example, both major party candidates in the most recent presidential election, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, got money from the first family of Florida Sugar, the Fanhul family, whom we'll talk about in greater detail next episode. So let's jump into this story. One of my main sources for these episodes is the book Raising Cane in the Glades, The Global Sugar Trade and the Transformation of Florida by Gail M. Hollander, who's a professor of geography at Florida International University, or FIU. Gail Hollander writes a lot about the government's crucial role in, first off, as the quote from David McCauley at the beginning of the episode mentioned, just creating the sugar-growing region in Florida just south of Lake Okeechobee, um, creating it in the first place, turning wetlands into, into relatively drylands. So Gail Hollander writes, quote, Adding up all of the public investments in the EAA, the Everglades Agricultural Area, including not only previous water control infrastructure, but also publicly funded agricultural research stations, the Federal Farm Labor Housing Centers, and the Everglades Fire Control District, revealed the tremendous, if not unprecedented, degree of state subsidization of private accumulation in the sugar industry, end quote. In fact, as both Hollander, David McCauley, and many other sources I read in preparing for this episode point out, the government would, quote-unquote, help out the sugar industry in many ways, 
before, during, and after the draining of the wetlands that created the so-called Florida Sugar Bowl in the first place. That story I told in the episode on draining the swamp. They would help them out not just in draining the land, but they would help them with issues related to soils, how to farm on these former muckland soils by helping them solve their labor issues and, of course, by severely limiting the amount of foreign sugar that got into the U.S. and by artificially keeping the U.S. price of sugar well above the world market price. Typically, by the way, the U.S. price for sugar is between two and three times as high as the general world market price. Now, these policies fly in the face of kind of basic Adam Smith, wealth of nations notions about comparative advantage and why free trade, real free trade, not phony free trade, but real free trade is the friend of the general consumer on both sides of whatever countries are trading. Because the fact of the matter is, most countries that grow sugarcane can do so better and cheaper, more efficiently, etc., than Florida. Florida is really marginal sugar-growing lands relative to some place like, for example, um, Cuba or Brazil. Those places can produce sugar much more cheaply and efficiently than Florida. So in an economically perfect universe where decent economic policies were put in place, you would never have a program to keep out cheap sugar from Brazil or Cuba or wherever in order to force American consumers to buy sugar at two to three times the world price to benefit a small group of Florida sugar growers. But of course, because we don't live in a universe where governments put in place economic policies that are actually for the common good, we end up in this situation where you have concentrated benefits to a small group with dispersed costs amongst taxpayers and consumers as a whole. But anyway, getting back a little bit more on Gail Hollander, because it's probably the book I'll refer to and quote from the most overall in this series. This book, Raising Cain in the Glades, I'll admit it's not the easiest read in the world. I don't think it's that well organized. It kind of jumps around a lot in places. And it is jargony at times, almost kind of a little bit postmodern-y jargon. But nonetheless, it's the single most important book I came across that just kind of tells this story of how did you end up with this heavily subsidized and protected um, sugar-growing empire in South Florida. And Hollander writes a lot about what she calls the sugar question and also what she calls sugar discourse. Now, on the sugar question... Hollander refers to it as basically being the overall question of where will the United States get its sugar from and what policies will be in place to try and bring about that the answer to that question. So Hollander writes, quote, In actuality, the development of Florida's agro-industrial region for sugar production did not result from a lack of appreciation of swamps, though prevailing cultural values regarding the environment were important. Rather, it was the outcome of battles that reached the highest political offices in the United States and in countries around the world, end quote. So this is the political issue that's then referred to by Hollander and often by people back in like the late 19th, early 20th century as the sugar question. And it involved many countries and included government policy questions revolving around things like bounties, tariffs and duties and quotas. So bounties are government rebates, usually tax rebates 
to producers of a particular commodity. Then you have tariffs and duties, which are taxes on imports coming into the country designed to make those imports more expensive than the domestic equivalent. And then you have quotas, which are government restrictions on supplies of something that are coming from certain designated places, generally aimed to keep the domestic price of a commodity high relative to the international market price. Hollander writes that the sugar question was in part about, quote, an interrelated series of discursive constructions of regions and commodities, end quote. And this is how it links into this idea of discourse, this idea of how do you imagine a location and its commodities and how do you differentiate the um, characteristics and identity of this place relative to other places that also produce this commodity? Okay, And this idea of discursive constructions of regions and commodities in relation to sugar is particularly important. People who wanted to grow sugar in Florida had to kind of create this image, first in their own minds and then in kind of the public mind and the government's mind, because, number one, since government support has been um, and continues to be necessary for sugar growing in Florida to survive and profit, growers have needed to have kind of like a nationalistic discourse in order to justify the domestic production and the policies necessary to kind of keep it afloat, the sort of various policies that provide the welfare to make sugar growing in Florida profitable for anyone to even do. Because in a truly free competitive market, it would always be outcompeted by Brazil and probably a dozen other countries. So you've got to have this kind of like moralistic and nationalistic notion to justify all these policies. And then secondly, because sugar is a fungible commodity, this discourse is necessary in order to differentiate sugars from different sources. Now, if you don't know that term fungible, what it means is it's kind of like impossible to really differentiate something that's kind of like interchangeable. So if you have a teaspoon of white refined sugar crystals, it's pretty much the same whether it came from Brazil, Cuba, Florida, or any of you know the countries that grow sugarcane and make white sugar crystals. There's really not any difference. I mean, they put their logos and their branding on it and whatever, but it's largely imaginary. Because as long as it's the same type and grade of sugar, it's pretty much interchangeable. So because of this, because it's fungible, you need to have these almost like narratives or stories about, well, you know, this is the patriotic place that's the moral place to buy sugar from, not from, you know, shady country X or whatever it is. So a lot of Hollander's book comes back to this idea of using discourse to create the idea of Florida's sugar bowl as America's sugar bowl. And oftentimes, Cuba functions as kind of the foil to Florida in this discourse. So Hollander writes that Cuba has been important to the history of the development of Florida sugar growing in three ways. First is a model. How do you do it? Second, as a competitor. And third, as in Hollander's words, the regional other to Florida's self. So in various ways, Cuba is used by Florida sugar growers as the other to differentiate themselves as better in some way. 
And the story of the relationship between Florida sugar and Cuban sugar is one that will come up a lot in both episodes on the rise of the Cane Kingdom. Now, we'll jump into the narrative in the late 19th century in Florida. After the Civil War, of course, there had been attempts at growing sugar in Florida prior to the Civil War on a modest scale. For example, in draining the swamp, I think I mentioned that uh, Florida's first senator, one of Florida's first senators, David Levy Uly, among other things, owned a sugar plantation before the Civil War. But none of these really succeeded on a really large scale, and it wasn't until a few decades after the Civil War that anyone began to think about really large-scale sugar growing in Florida as kind of a plausible theoretical proposition. And it wasn't until the drainage of South Florida's wetlands was pretty well underway that it became a real-world possibility. Now, a key milestone in U.S. agricultural history that would have a major impact on sugar, and for that matter on many other agricultural commodities too, was the creation by the Lincoln administration of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, in 1862. Now, there had been various politicians who had wanted to create this for a long time, but it hadn't been possible in the antebellum period because, of course, due to regional divisions over different types of agriculture, much of it revolving around the difference between southern slave-based agriculture on the plantations versus northern, more commonly kind of yeoman farms and things like that. But with those southern states not participating in the, in the U.S. government during the war— that meant that the northern states could kind of set things up how they wanted, and they created the USDA in 1862. Now, the creation of and history of the USDA is a very interesting story. It shows you how from literally the Civil War years, agriculture in this country has, at least when it comes to many key products and commodities, not really been a free market thing. Now, of course, the USDA over the decades and centuries has gradually accumulated more power and tightened its control of agriculture. But from pretty early on, they were involved in trying to have kind of a government agency, a government bureau intervening in various ways into agriculture and commodities. Like any major government department, of course, its number one task is to get bigger and more powerful and so on every year. And one of the major concerns from the beginning with the USDA was increasing sugar production. Of course, at the time, people were mostly thinking in terms of sugar beets, but it didn't take long until people started to look to a few of the more tropical-ish places in the Deep South, like Florida and Louisiana, saying, well, we could grow cane there. And a key person in some of this early on was Rufus Rose, who I might have mentioned in Draining the Swamp, I think. Rufus Rose was the head engineer for that guy, Hamilton Diston, the guy who made the big deal in the 1880s with the state of Florida to get a giant piece of land, and Hamilton Diston was supposed to try to drain it, and he only achieved very, very partial success at that. Well, Rufus Rose was, like I said, Diston's head engineer, and he was from Louisiana, so he had some background knowledge of sugar. In 1885, not long after Hamilton Diston did his land deal, Rufus Rose purchased over 400 acres of land in central Florida, and by 1887 had planted 90 of those acres with sugarcane. 
Hamilton Disson himself bought half of the ownership of this sugar plantation, which was called St. Cloud. This is the origin of the town of St. Cloud. Some of you may have heard of it. It's sometimes paired with Kissimmee. You'll hear Kissimmee St. Cloud. It's not far from Disney World. With Disson's investment, Rose aimed to increase sugar planting and build a sugar mill. Sugar is one of those crops, sugar cane, that you have to kind of plant and expand it sort of gradually. This is why you'll often see, if you read up on this stuff like I've been doing, some guy will you know, buy 800 acres, and within a few years, he's maybe at most got a quarter of it planted with sugar cane, if that. Diston was greatly encouraged in the idea of expanding sugar cane growing in Florida by the sugar bounty that was part of the so-called McKinley Tariff of 1890. But Rose thought this would only be short-lived. He was a little bit more savvy to kind of the politics of sugar, and so he was a little more skeptical, like, eh, we don't want to bet the farm on this, literally, because it might not last. So because he wasn't willing to bet the farm, or in this case the plantation, on it, Rose sold out his remaining half of the plantation to Diston. Now, prior to the 1890 McKinley Tariff, U.S. sugar policy had placed higher tariffs on refined sugar than on raw sugar, but both of them had tariffs on them. The McKinley Tariff, by contrast, eliminated the tariff on raw sugar, but then replaced the tariff with a two-cent bounty, which in practice amounted to a subsidy for domestic sugar growers. And under these conditions, predictably, growing of both sugar beets and sugar cane expanded significantly in the U.S. This is kind of basic political economics 101. Anytime you subsidize something, you'll get more of it. Now, another side effect of this policy was it hurt Hawaiian sugar because previously Hawaiian sugar had had an advantage over Cuban and other quote-unquote foreign sugar because it had, prior to the McKinley tariff, been the only foreign raw sugar that was given an exception and imported duty-free to the U.S. This is before Hawaii was fully taken over by the U.S., but for a few years, it was high cotton for Hamilton Diston. He created a company he called the Florida Sugar Manufacturing Company and operated that on the plantation that he'd bought from Rose. And he invested even more money into it to expand cultivation and processing facilities. Another government connection, Hamilton Diston lent 40 acres of his sugar land to the USDA for sugarcane-related research, and this research was conducted by a government chemist named Harvey Wiley. In an 1891 report, Wiley argued that if it were drained, the land south of Lake Okeechobee, so still significantly further south than the Kissimmee-St. Cloud area, that that land, if it were properly drained, would be even better for sugarcane than the area that Wiley was operating in in central Florida. And he said in this report that the land south of Lake Okeechobee could even outcompete Cuba if it were just drained. Distant Sugar Company, though, failed in large measure due to timing. He overinvested in the company just before a few things happened. In rapid succession, there was the Panic of 1893 and the Depression that followed, and that has, you know, the normal effect it has on business and commodity prices and so on. And then also to make matters worse, the sugar bounty was repealed in 1894. And there had been political problems that had slowed some of the payments of the sugar bounty, even while it was in place in kind of the last uh, year or two of it. So it was... Really bad timing on Hamilton Disson's part to dump all this investment into the sugar 
operation in Florida right before all that happened. And Hamilton Disson, of course, if you'll recall, died in 1896, possibly of a suicide, according to many sources, but also possibly something more mundane like a heart attack. But Disson had done two things during his brief stint growing sugar in Florida. First, he had demonstrated that sugarcane could be successfully grown in Florida on former wetlands once they were drained. And second, his giant land purchase that he made had bailed out the state's internal improvement fund, which of course paved the way for increased development of the state, as I covered in the Draining the Swamp episode. Distin's failure, however, his ultimate failure after a few years of seeming success, had shown that sugarcane production in Florida would need significant political quote-unquote help in order to be viable in the long run. But many agricultural boosters, many Florida boosters, and many politicians who believed in ideas of kind of economic nationalism and self-sufficiency kept coming back to this idea of growing sugarcane in Florida. The Republican Party's platform of 1896, on which William McKinley ran for president and was elected against William Jennings Bryan, that platform was very protectionist, and it included, amongst many others, a call for protectionism in sugar in order to try to bring about American sugar self-sufficiency. Once they were in office, the Republicans instituted something called the Dingley Tariff of 1897, which called for the U.S. government to institute a kind of policy of reciprocity so that the U.S. duties on importation of another country's sugar would equal that country's government subsidies to their producers. The effect of this tariff on Cuba's economy, by the way, was one of the major factors that fed into the increased unrest and rebellion in Cuba, which then became one of the main justifications, not the real reason, of course, but the justification, the excuse, the alibi for U.S. intervention against Spain in 1898. Harvey Wiley, that man who was doing sugarcane experiments for the USDA on Distance land in the early 1890s? was actually the top USDA chemist from the 1880s all the way through 1912. He was also, by the way, side note, the key person behind the 1906 Food and Drug Act. One of Wiley's big concerns from early on in his career was to foster domestic American sugar production. He argued that the U.S. could and should be self-sufficient in sugar, and that th this could be done through a combination of sugar beets in the temperate areas and then sugar cane in kind of the lower southeast. At that time, Europe, especially Germany, produced a large amount of beet sugar in the late 19th century under conditions of government bounties to domestic producers of sugar beets. Now, the global context is the world sugar market was actually oversaturated even in the late 19th century, and yet many Americans, such as Wiley, still thought that the U.S. should enlarge its sugar production and put in place policies to encourage domestic production and discourage imports. So you've got a situation, and this has been the case repeatedly for much of the last, I don't know, 130 plus years, where... If anything, globally, there's too much sugar being produced. And yet the U.S. government, it's not alone in this, by the way, other, some other countries do this too, puts in place policies designed to artificially increase domestic production of a commodity that globally is in a glut. Now, you might be thinking, well, it's just because uh, the politicians and bureaucrats don't understand economics. And 
I'm sure many of them don't, but I don't think they're that dumb that they would think that producing more of a commodity that's already in oversupply is a good economic policy. I think in many cases, it comes down to classic special interests uh, politics, classic public choice, where it's like, well, yeah, but this small group of people who want to get paid to produce more of this commodity, they're giving generous donations to the right people. So they know exactly what they're doing. Now, the justifications, this is where we start to get into that whole concept of discourse. The justifications for domestic production couldn't rely on pure economics, because the reality is to anyone who really understands correct economics, justifications for increased domestic production easily are debunked. Because free trade and importing cheap sugar from abroad made total sense from the standpoint of everyone in America other than those who were personally involved in sugar production in some way. Therefore, the justifications by proponents of increased sugar self-sufficiency relied more on moralistic and or nationalistic arguments. In the decades right after the Civil War, for example, propaganda in favor of increased U.S. sugar production focused on morality. Because at that time, two of the largest sugarcane growers in the world, namely Brazil and Cuba, still had slavery. Whereas America had abolished slavery in 1865, so American sugar boosters could say, well, we, yeah, we could buy cheap sugar from these places, but it's grown by slaves, so that's immoral. Why not pay a little bit more to have it here, where there's no more slavery? But by the mid-1880s, slavery was abolished even in Brazil and Cuba, and so those arguments couldn't be used anymore. In 1897, an agricultural writer named Herbert Myrick published a little book with a ridiculously long subtitle. It was entitled Sugar, a new and profitable industry in the United States for capital, agriculture, and labor to supply the home market yearly with $100 million of its product. <sighs> and in this little book with a ridiculously long subtitle, Myrick, like Harvey Wiley before him, argued that the U.S. could and should seek to encourage increased domestic sugar production. In this little book, he had maps which showed in the U.S. two sugar belts. There was a huge beet sugar belt, encompassing much of the central and northern United States, and a smaller but still pretty big cane sugar belt. By the way, both of these sugar belts, wildly exaggerated in size, relative to where those two crops can really be grown in the U.S., so their cane belt, for example, encompassed most of the southeastern U.S., which, of course, is not actually a good place to grow cane other than a few places. Myrick argued that the only reason the U.S. wasn't already producing most of its own sugar was that the European industry had uh, state support and protection from foreign competitions and that the U.S. sugar industry needed comparable state support and protection of its own in order to counterbalance that. I think those of you who pay attention to modern-day political disputes over trade policy probably right away see the same sorts of arguments in different areas today, although sometimes still in sugar, too. Cuba was significantly modernizing its own sugar industry in the late 19th century, and after the 1898 Spanish-American War, which kicked out the Spanish and made Cuba part of America's informal empire, where nominally it's a sovereign country, nominally it's not an American territory or anything like that, but in reality it's kind of run by a government that's 
a sock puppet of the United States to a large degree. Once Cuba became part of America's informal empire, which it would remain until 1959, American capital invested a huge amount of money into Cuban sugar production. So, at the turn of the century, tariffs were a very popularly debated political issue, and sugar was one of many important commodities within that debate. Also in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, the U.S. government had to think about sugar policy in colonial terms as well, because it had acquired, from Spain, the Philippines and Puerto Rico, which were both places where sugar was grown. Now, with the U.S. having taken over Hawaii, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and added Cuba to kind of its informal empire and increasingly involved in Cuban sugar growing and investing in it, Gail Hollander writes that after 1898, quote, Florida's significance as a subtropical frontier was greatly diminished. Agricultural boosters recognize this, and so we see a rivalry between Florida and the new American sugar kingdom, by which she means the American-owned sugar production in the Caribbean and the Philippines. And so we see a rivalry between Florida and the new American sugar kingdom discursively constructed as populist protectionism versus capitalist imperialism, end quote. And sugar consumption was only going up. The U.S. would catch and eventually overtake the U.K. to become the world's number one country for sugar consumption. According to science writer Gary Tobbs in his book, The Case Against Sugar, five industries in particular took off during the late 19th century and early 20th century, which is when sugar became pretty cheap in most parts of the world. And these five industries that took off in turn, caused sugar consumption to skyrocket in the Western world per capita. Those five industries were soda, candy, chocolate, ice cream, and cigarettes. And while the first four might seem like obvious no-duh places that would consume a lot of sugar, cigarettes might surprise you. But sugar was actually a key part of making blended cigarettes that could be inhaled without too much unpleasantness a key part of making some of the types of tobacco that were used in blended cigarettes and making them more powerful was curing them in a sugary solution. So this process of sugar curing was one of the key parts of R.J. Reynolds' Camel Cigarettes, which took the U.S. and the world by storm in the early 20th century. They were the first kind of global, mass-produced, mass-consumed blended cigarette. Tobbs writes, quote, if the explicit goal had been to maximize the delivery of nicotine, and so, regrettably, carcinogens with it, to the human lungs, R.J. Reynolds may not have been able to find a better way to do it. American cigarette manufacturers all followed suit. By 1929, U.S. tobacco growers were saucing burly tobacco with 50 million pounds of sugar a year and using it in over 120 billion cigarettes. The sugar balanced out the tobacco's naturally alkaline smoke, maximizing its inhalability and delivering even more nicotine into the lungs. The sugars in the tobacco also caramelize as they burn, and the caramelization of the smoke provides a sweet flavor and an agreeable smell that made cigarettes more attractive to women smokers and to adolescents as well. End quote. So yeah, sugar doesn't just harm people who eat sugar had also played a key role in the rise of cigarette smoking globally. 
Now, after the Spanish-American War, like I said before, U.S. capital began to invest very heavily then more so than before in Caribbean sugar, especially in Cuba and to a much lesser extent, Puerto Rico. In 1901, Charles Crampton, who was a chemist who worked for a while under Harvey Wiley at the USDA before eventually going to work for the Internal Revenue Bureau, apparently they need chemists over there. Charles Crampton, he called for a policy of eliminating tariffs on sugar coming from Hawaii, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Cuba. So uh, three American colonies and one informal colony, which actually was briefly, technically, a military protectorate of the U.S. in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. And the Platt Amendment in particular, that amendment passed by Congress that said that the U.S. government kind of reserved the right to play God with Cuba's politics, that gave American investors a lot of confidence that their interests would be safeguarded in Cuba come what may. The policy that was actually put into place regarding sugar from these places was pretty close to what Crampton had advocated for. Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Philippines sugar would come into the U.S. duty-free, while Cuba would get reciprocity. In 1903, at a meeting in Macon, Georgia, the Interstate Sugar Cane Growers Association was established. This was at a time when cotton's profitability was in serious decline, and many were looking at sugarcane as a way to revive the economy of the Deep South. So this Interstate Sugarcane Growers Association pushed for increased cane production in the Deep South in order to improve everyone's economy in that part of the world. Rufus Rose, that former engineer for Hamilton Diston, was there and spoke at this convention and argued for wetland drainage in Florida and in favor of cultivating sugarcane once those lands were drained. At another interstate sugarcane growers association meeting a few years later, in 1906 in Mobile, then-Florida Governor Napoleon Bonaparte Broward, whom you'll remember from the Draining the Swamp episode, spoke. Governor Broward argued that draining the Everglades, of course his favorite thing, would allow South Florida to produce enough sugar to satisfy whatever slack remained in the domestic production of sugar and would enable the U.S. to be sugar self-sufficient. Rufus Rose spoke at this meeting, too, and made a lot of similar statements. Now, there was a split in the association in which Florida sugar proponents were more supportive of the idea of large-scale, centralized big sugar production, you know, big sugar plantations, than were people from other parts of the Deep South who often had kind of like a populist yeoman idea of, oh, these small farmers growing sugar. Hollander writes of this quote, While other Southerners had a populist vision of regional development based on small farmers and dispersed mills, Florida officials were looking to an unsettled frontier with a subtropical climate, which they regarded as a blank slate on which to construct a highly capitalized, centralized, industrial plantation system similar to those recently developed in eastern Cuba. Thus, the regional vision of a sugarcane belt gave way to the rhetoric of Florida's sugar bowl boosterism." End quote. Florida's main obstacles to bringing this vision about, making it a reality, were first off draining the wetlands, and secondly, hobbling sugar imports, trying to keep out foreign-grown cane sugar as much as possible. And they would need to use the federal government to solve both of those problems. 
Hollander asks rhetorically, quote, Why were the Everglades transformed into an agro-industrial complex for sugarcane at great environmental and monetary cost during a period of oversupply and depressed prices in the global sugar market? The answer lies beyond the reach of the market's invisible hand. Populist rhetoric of drainage supporters like Broward aside, economic development in the Everglades would not depend on an influx of yeoman farmers, but on the establishment of a large-scale corporate-owned agro-industrial complex, end quote. Now, the next big thing to happen to Florida sugar growing and sugar growing in the U.S. in general was World War I, which had a big impact on sugar globally which created conditions in which, for the first time, sugar supporters, um, supporters of domestic sugarcane growing and so on, could argue, at least semi-plausibly, that there was a national security angle to domestic sugar growing. Now, the Great War temporarily slowed the drainage projects that were begun by Broward in Florida, but overall and in the long run, kind of big picture, the war provided a new political rationale for those who wanted to create a Florida Sugar Bowl. And that, as I already kind of touched on, this idea of national security, almost in some ways to the arguments about oil today, where, or just energy in general, where anytime you hear someone saying um, about a new fuel source or, you know, investing more in solar or ethanol or whatever it is, there's always this angle of, well, and it also means we're less dependent on those damn foreigners for our oil. And so that's a way to, for them to try to override what clearly anyone who got a passing grade in Economics 101 should be able to tell is an economically destructive policy of sugar protectionism. Gail Hollander writes, quote, World War I transformed the geography of the U.S. sugar supply into a question of national food security and gave Florida boosters an opportunity to discursively construct their imagined sugarcane region as a national security issue, end quote. At least, that was the justification that the special interests who wanted uh, subsidized and protected profits gave for the drainage and sugar import policies that they wanted. And who knows, some of them may have even believed their own hype. During World War I, armies around the world were looking at sugar as a way to increase troops' performance in the field. They really thought, like, oh, this is just a miracle thing. Just jack the soldiers up with some sugar and they'll, you know, stay awake longer and fight harder and run faster and whatever. And so that, plus the overall kind of economic situation of the war, meant that the governments involved in World War I were looking to increase sugar supplies. During the war, uh, Woodrow Wilson created the U.S. Food Administration and appointed progressive Republican and future President Herbert Hoover to head it. No, the reality of Hoover is not that he was a free market laissez-faire guy. He just uh, wasn't a new dealer. He didn't want to go quite as far as the New Deal ultimately did, but um, even some of FDR's own people admitted that the New Deal was based on a lot of the policies Hoover had already started doing during his term as president. But anyway, that's a different story. Hoover, in charge of the Food Administration, in turn appointed a guy named George M. Rolfe to run the sugar division of the Food Administration. And Rolfe was the head of the California and Hawaii Refining Company, one of the West Coast sugar refiners. 
and the economy, of course, was heavily controlled during the U.S. Uh, participation in World War One. Only World War II has exceeded it in terms of government takeover of the economy. Cuban sugar really boomed during World War I as much of Europe's domestic sugar beet production was crippled by the war. And in particular, the world's two largest sugar consumers in the world, the U.S. and the U.K., both imported a very large amount of their sugar from Cuba during World War I. At the time, Cuba was the largest sugar producer and the lowest cost sugar producer in the world, in part something that had been boosted by U.S. investment in the years since the Spanish-American War. Ultimately, the sugar division of the Food Administration didn't really have the ability to solve the high price and short supply problems of sugar during World War I. The best they could do was try to manage it. They were basically asked to do some contradictory things. They were charged with trying to increase domestic U.S. sugar production, while at the same time keeping prices stable, which this is a problem because only higher prices would have spurred the massively increased um, domestic production and also curtailed excess consumption. And of course, these sorts of central planning economic agencies are always working at cross-purposes to basic economics. They're always trying to do multiple contradictory things at the same time. Which, of course, is why they tend to rarely solve problems and usually just end up creating new, worse problems. But of course, if it's not working, just keep adding new offices and departments and whatever on top of it. So in July of 1918, at the urging of Herbert Hoover, Wilson created the United States Sugar Equalization Board, which was supposed to equalize sugar costs from different sources and also improve the distribution of sugar. Once established, this board soon contracted to purchase the entire 1918-19 Cuban sugar crop. But despite this, wartime conditions and the economic distortions created by the war still resulted in global shortages, and increasingly strict rationing was instituted for sugar, as for many other key commodities, in all major countries involved in the war. And those who wanted to create a sugar bowl in Florida seized on all of this in order to bolster their case for supporting Florida sugar as a national security issue. In 1918, a scientist and businessman named C. Lyman Spencer, who was president of a group, I'm not making this up, called the American Sugar League. You got to love the names of stuff during World War I. They're like over the top Captain America. The um, Oh, sorry, not the American Sugar League, the All-American Sugar League. There we go. C. Lyman Spencer, president of the All-American Sugar League, wrote a pamphlet called The Sugar Situation. And in this, he argued that South Florida was the only area of the contiguous U.S. that could grow sugarcane well. Spencer argued that South Florida could do a better job of providing sugar to Americans than either domestic beet sugar or Cuban cane sugar. And in his various proposals of how to do this, Spencer even proposed using prisoners, both federal, state, and POWs, to provide the labor for Florida sugar plantations. Spencer's All-American Sugar League put out publications with covers that said things like, this is a quote, America first, 
Put the American sugar peninsula to work. Convert southern sunshine into foodstuffs for American and European tables. End quote. By the way, every sentence of that headline that I just read you ended with an exclamation point except for the last one, and that one ended with three. In their PR, in their propaganda, sugar bowl boosters still were contradictory, bouncing back and forth between populist rhetoric and centralist rhetoric. And what I mean by that is that they argued that increased Florida sugar growing would provide opportunities for modest yeoman farmers, family farmers. And at the same time, they also argued that Florida could beat Cuba at growing sugar, and the reason is they could have their operations even more centralized, with even greater economies of scale. So, as is so often the case, if you're really paying attention and thinking critically about propaganda of some group advocating some government solution to a problem, if you look closely, very often you find they're making contradictory arguments. But still, at the time, the World War I era, more American investment was actually going into Cuban sugar than into Florida sugar. Now, after World War I, with the relaxation of price controls that eventually happened, sugar prices initially spiked and then slumped. Now, this is a common thing when prices of something have been suppressed for a while. Initially, they overcorrect. overcorrect. You can think about it. It's almost like if you take, I don't know, a, a beach ball and you pull it under the water in the pool and then eventually let it go. It's going to like jump up out of the water, right? And then it's going to settle back down to kind of where it wants to be floating right on the surface of the water. Well, prices that are controlled, they kind of do that. So sugar initially spikes and then came back down a bit. As a result of this, in the aftermath of World War I, Cuba's economy briefly was pushed up dramatically. They had a big boom and then came back down. When the slump happened, when it came back down, U.S. investors via Wall Street investment banks significantly increased their control of Cuban sugar production. So they saw it as a buying opportunity. Over the course of the 1920s, as sugar prices generally declined after that initial spike following the war, as sugar prices were declining, the U.S. government raised the tariff on Cuban sugar. Cuba responded in the latter part of the 20s by trying to reduce its production of sugar and also trying to get some European sugar-producing countries to cut their production, too, in order to drive the price up in almost sort of like an OPEC strategy for sugar. Florida sugar boosters, again, pointed to this as a reason to promote increased sugar production in Florida. Basically, it's heads I win, tails you lose. No matter what's going on in the world politically and economically, no matter what's going on with sugar prices, wouldn't you know what the solution is always to have the federal government do more to keep out foreign sugar and support increased production of sugar in Florida? But the long-term trend has always been, with a few setbacks because of wars and things, the long-term trend for over 200 years has always been gradually um, increased sugar consumption, both nationally and globally, in per capita terms, too. I'm not just talking because the population is growing. And there were some innovations in the 30s that also helped to boost sugar consumption, in particular, the coming of vending machines from which you could sell sodas and candies and things. The coming of vending machines and also the coming of really widespread refrigeration, which increased, you know, the, the amount of sugary products you could have. However, despite this increase in sugar consumption, the Great Depression, of course, hit most commodity prices very hard, and sugar was no exception. 
And in the face of the Depression, the famous Smoot-Hawley Tariff of 1930 raised the tariff on sugar, and on many other things too for that matter, but raised the tariff on sugar to an even higher level than it had already been during the 20s, and of course Cuba was very hard hit by all these developments. But it was in the post-World War I era that you started to get the first major attempts at growing sugar since Hamilton Distance um, attempts in the 1890s. In fact, um, attempts that are on a larger scale than Distant even ever got to. And one of the most important, even though um, in the short term it failed, but because it paved the way for success of later people to kind of pick up the baton, was starting in the early 1920s, the Pennsylvania Sugar Co., which is often abbreviated as Pensuco, it bought 75,000 acres northwest of Miami and brought in a mill from Texas and a bunch of mechanized tractors and brought in a man named Ernest Graham, who was an engineer from Michigan, to manage this in an attempt to grow sugar on a large scale in southern Florida. By the way, Ernest Graham, uh, his son, is eventually going to be a governor and senator in Florida. Pensuco's mill began operating in 1924, but ultimately, though, because of a lack of sufficient drainage at the time, Pensaco's Florida operation would fail. The company's president, a man named George Earl, would blame the state government for not living up to the promises it had made to him about drainage. So again, tying into the Draining the Swamp episode, a big hurdle in the way of all these attempts is going to be um, getting sufficient drainage of the wetlands. Another Florida sugar company of this time was one which began as Florida Sugar and Food Products, which then turned into the Florida Sugar Company and then turned into the Southern Sugar Company after it was bought by a Swedish immigrant and wealthy entrepreneur named Bror Dahlberg. Dahlberg wasn't originally interested in table sugar as his main product. Instead, he was interested in something that was called Celotex, which was apparently a lumber substitute made from sugarcane. That Celotex would be his main product, and that table sugar would be kind of a side thing or a byproduct. Southern Sugar bought 15,000 acres of former Custard Apple Swamp just south of Lake Okeechobee, and this would prove to be extremely good sugar-growing land some of the best in Florida. From there, they grew their holdings, buying up more and more land until by 1929, they had around 130,000 acres in the area south of Lake Okeechobee. That year, 1929, they purchased two mills and moved them to the town of Clewiston, which was a town that had only been around for nine years. The town basically became their company town from that point onward, and Dahlberg hired and brought in top experts in sugar growing and engineering to work for his company. The official opening of the Clewiston Sugar Mill in 1929 is really seen as the official beginning of this region of Florida, this area just south of Lake Okeechobee, being the United States' sugar bowl for real, no longer just in a fantasy of a few people. Environmental historian David McCauley quotes an Everglades pioneer named Lawrence Will as saying that the arrival of Bror Dahlberg and his company in the 1920s began the era when, quote, the sugar company gobbled up the land so that there was no place left to farm, end quote. 
the Southern Sugar Company effectively lobbied for increased construction of dams and canals in 1929-1930, and by 1930, Southern Sugar had 25,000 of its acres growing sugar, and its mills were producing 4,000 tons per day. However, despite all of this, in the fall of 1930, the Southern Sugar Company went into receivership because of stockholder lawsuits against Dahlberg over various alleged misdeeds. And as a result of this, majority ownership of the company ended up going to a man named Charles Stewart Mott, who was at that time VP of General Motors. Charles Stuart Mott is a very interesting guy. He was born in 1875 in New Jersey to a family that was in the bicycle tire industry. In 1907, Charles, who was by then head of what was called the Weston Mott Company, moved himself and his company to Michigan. Soon after that, Weston Mott merged with Buick, which shortly after that was acquired by General Motors, and as a result of these deals, Charles Stuart Mott ended up as a major GM shareholder at the company's beginning, and he served on GM's board of directors until his death in 1973, and was for a while VP of the company. He also, interesting side note, served two non-consecutive terms as mayor of Flint, Michigan in the 19-teens. And in 1920, he ran unsuccessfully in the Republican primary for the governor of Michigan, and twice served as a Michigan delegate to Republican national conventions. Mott turned this company, Southern Sugar, into the United States Sugar Corporation, or USSC. For decades thereafter, this would be the largest Florida sugar company, and today it's still the second largest Florida sugar company. In the 1930s, Mott and his family combined owned over two-thirds of USSC's stock. Gail Hollander writes, quote, The company's naming, combined with the previous designation of the region as the nation's sugar bowl, was part of an effort to discursively construct Florida's cane plantations as vital to national interests. Indeed, in the case of the strategically named USSC, the distinction between national government initiatives and private enterprise would become blurred in the public's mind in the New Deal era. Also around that time in 1931, as Mott was getting USSC going on the basis of the Southern Sugar Company, a man named Frank Heiser was getting a company called the Felsmere Sugar Company going in Felsmere, Florida. Both of these companies had learned from earlier attempts at growing sugar in Florida and had a pretty good idea of how to do that pretty well in terms of the soil and, you know, just kind of physically, logistically how to do it. So they didn't need to reinvent the wheel as far as just the growing of the cane. Instead, one of their biggest problems was the low sugar prices globally and also in the U.S. at the time and the depression, you know, pulling down the prices of commodities, including sugar. In addition to price, still, Florida sugar growers' other main problems were adequate drainage for that area south of Lake Okeechobee, and also something we've not talked about in, in much detail yet, but is a major thing at the time, assuring a substantial supply of low-cost, controllable labor in order to do the really, really tough work in the cane fields, which still, in the 1930s, and for that matter, in most cases all the way up through the early 90s, was still, to a significant degree, done by hand, and to be more specific, by hand and machete. 
and it is a tough job. I'll probably talk more about it, um, including next episode, but harvesting sugarcane by hand using machetes in the tropical South Florida weather is brutal in a lot of different ways. It is not a job anyone really picks as their first choice. And usually jobs that are very difficult and or dangerous and or dirty are jobs that free market forces will tend to pay a decent wage for. And so the trouble with companies that are willing to go the political entrepreneur route if they're an operation that requires low-cost labor, and if the job in question is very difficult, dangerous, and dirty, or some combination thereof, they will go to the go to their political benefactors and basically get them somehow to help them out to kind of still be able to get someone to do this crappy job and still pay them crap for it, which normally people aren't willing to do. Normally, in order to attract workers to a difficult, dangerous job, you need to offer them pretty good compensation to compensate for that. But the sugar growers didn't want to do that. The United States federal government would end up being the key to solving all of the remaining three Florida sugar growers' problems or hurdles. The problem of the price of sugar, the problem of drainage of the area, and the problem of labor. Of course, we already covered how they handled the drainage aspects in draining the swamp, so I won't rehash it all that much here. And one other thing I just want to mention that is either not known, or in some cases is deliberately ignored in a kind of lie by omission by many historians, is the degree to which the New Deal programs of the FDR administration in the 30s were actually supported by and were favorable to many big corporations. Now, it's true that there were some big corporations that didn't like the New Deal policies, but in fact, there were many others who loved them. FDR and the New Deal were not across the board, anti-big corporation. They were only anti-some big corporations. But they were actually quite favorable to others, and there were plenty of corporations that loved the New Deal policies. And domestic sugar production was one aspect of business that was definitely helped by the New Deal. Gail Hollander writes, quote, the decade leading up to U.S. involvement in World War II was a critical period in the establishment of the sugar agro-industry in South Florida. The federal government became increasingly involved with, indeed complicit in, sugar investors' imagined economic geography. This was the New Deal era when federal programs proliferated and brought government regulation into all aspects of sugarcane production in Florida, including labor, markets and trade, and environmental management. This was also the heyday of large-scale, federally-directed environmental engineering projects. These were the salad days of federal agencies such as the Bureau of Reclamation and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, whose project transformed arid lands and wetlands alike into phenomenally productive agricultural regions, albeit at phenomenally high environmental costs." End quote. Clarence Bidding, who at the time was the VP of U.S. Sugar of USSC, would be a major spokesman defining the Florida Sugar Bowl as America's Sugar Bowl, in contrast to its main competition, which of course was Cuba. And USSC would prove to be very good at playing the political entrepreneurship game. In fact, they were the champs of it in sugar until the Fan Hool brothers got rolling. 
Brewer Dahlberg had already paved some of the political ground before the failure of Southern Sugar and its transformation into USSC. Apparently, Dahlberg, who was a staunch Republican, had a huge ambitious plan that went far beyond just making money from Southern Sugar. Dahlberg wanted to turn Florida into a consistently Republican state, and the support of Herbert Hoover and the Congress during that period for a lot of Dahlberg's preferences and policy was at least partly due to this political angle. Florida had been one of a handful of southern states that had actually gone for Hoover in the 1928 election, though that had a lot more to do with the fact that the Democrats that year ran Al Smith, who was a New York Catholic and an outspoken opponent of prohibition, than it had to do with any long-term change in Florida that was already taking place in the 20s. But nonetheless, somehow Brewer-Dahlberg thought that by developing a sugar industry in Florida, this would somehow set Florida on the path to becoming consistently Republican. Charles Stuart Mott was also a Republican, so he may have shared some of the same notions. But nonetheless, he was quite willing and able to work with Democrat politicians both in Florida and in the federal government as well. During the FDR New Deal years, agriculture in the U.S. became even more tightly controlled by the federal government than it had been before, and it was already pretty controlled. So the USDA was just continually increasing its intervention into the agricultural markets of the U.S. Thus, all types of farming became even more subject to the preferences of politicians and bureaucrats, and even more centrally planned and tightly controlled. And of course, in the classic revolving door sense, you've got the people who are supposedly regulating the industry, oftentimes really just trying to help out the industry. Now, it's no secret to anyone who studied the effects of the New Deal on agriculture that large landowners and big corporate operations were the main beneficiaries of the New Deal's agricultural policies pretty much everywhere, and Florida was certainly no exception. Tenants and small farmers, small yeoman farmers, were hit very hard by the Depression, and they were not nearly helped as much by the AAA and the other 1930s agricultural programs as were the big mega farms and large landowners. And so American agriculture became even more centralized and corporatized after the New Deal than it had been before. And federal policies became increasingly favorable to domestic sugar production at the expense of foreign, which often would have been cheaper under conditions of free trade. And increasingly, the U.S. sugar production, even within the domestic market, became increasingly cartelized and even in some cases centrally planned. The Jones-Costigan Act of 1934 set quotas of sugar production for both cane and beet sugar production domestically. And when in later years beet growers didn't always meet their quota, the cane growers were able to get their share increased. So it's this very kind of premeditated um, industry where they're like, all right, cane growers can grow this much and beet growers can grow that much. It's all, it's all rigged. It's a cartel. Hollander writes of the impact of this law, quote, in a sense, the act substituted political risk for economic risk, guaranteeing producers a price and quota, but making the levels of production a political question to be answered by USDA bureaucrats, end quote. 
under this program, under this system put in place by this law, USSC got by far the most benefits from the federal government of any Florida sugar company, with Felsmere coming in a distant second. In 1937, the Jones-Costigan Act was revamped as the Sugar Act of 1937, which set up a system of regional quotas for sugar production. So it's even more micromanaged now. And one thing that came out of this was an increase in the quota for mainland U.S. domestic sugarcane growers. The Sugar Act was revised yet again in 1948 and then remained in that form until 1974, so that... Putting all these things together, which in various ways controlled sugar production and the sugar market in the U.S., for 40 years, from 1934 to 74, the U.S. sugar market was very tightly controlled by the federal government. I mean, it's still pretty controlled and subsidized um, indirectly and, and protected today, but I mean, it was heavily, almost centrally planned from the mid-30s through the mid-70s. And I'm not exaggerating when I say a high degree of central planning. It's like something out of the Politburo in Moscow in the old Soviet days. Or maybe Mao's Great Leap Forward. Each year, the USDA would make estimates of what the country's sugar needs were going to be, and then they would apportion quotas to various producers, and then, where appropriate, pay subsidies to producers too. And this is the very, very simplified version of what they did. When you Dig into the nitty-gritty details of this. U.S. sugar policy during these years was even more Byzantine, and in some ways it really did resemble Soviet-style economic planning, albeit with the artificially inflated quote-unquote profits legally, blatantly, and obviously going into private hands without even having to be um, corrupt and discreet about it. And I say profits there because it's always kind of bugged me that the same word, Profit is used to describe people who honestly and honorably make a profit from voluntary transactions. The same word is used to describe corporate welfare companies, political entrepreneurs, etc. And I've always felt like maybe we need a different word to describe the income, um, the benefit earned by political entrepreneurs. That way the word profit doesn't get morally tainted by the crap those people do. Somewhere I heard someone once suggest, and I can't remember who it was or where, someone once suggests that we call um, profits acquired by the political means, instead of through voluntary transaction, that we call those spoils. And so, I don't know, maybe that's worth um, pursuing, but it always bugs me. It's the same word. Lobbyists within the system, lobbyists for sugar growers would, of course, always try to maximize their production quota at the expense of other sugar-producing regions, which were at the same time trying to do the same for their own interests. So when economics becomes politicized, it becomes a zero-sum game rather than a game of voluntary win-win transactions. When it becomes more about rent-seeking, which rent-seeking is when a company is simply trying to increase its share of an existing pie rather than trying to like create its own, you know, wealth to the economy. I'm probably not putting that great, but it's the idea that, let me put it differently, rather than adding to the economy, they're simply trying to um, seize a larger slice out of the economy, rent seeking. It sounds, if you're not familiar with economic jargon, it sounds like it's someone trying to, you know, find an apartment to live in or whatever, but that's not what it means in, in economic context, rent seeking. 
So way back in episode 110 of the DHP, which was part two of my 21 key concepts little series, I talked about so-called public choice economics and this related concept of rent seeking. So I'll make sure to link to that episode in the show notes for this episode so that if you've not listened to that episode, you can check it out. I just want to mention a little bit about the ideology of Charles Stuart Mott that he then kind of brought with him to USSC. Hollander writes of Mott that he, quote, held to an ideology of corporate paternalism as an alternative to labor unionism. He founded one of the country's largest philanthropic organizations in 1926, the Charles Stuart Mott Foundation, in order to spread his ideas of social engineering. Thus, when the Mott family gained majority ownership of USSC, corporate paternalism and industrial managerialism were melded with an agro-industrial enterprise based on plantation production in the racism of the Jim Crow South, end quote. So yeah, they're trying to kind of meld this corporate paternalism, which on the surface sounds kind of benevolent, but in reality, it's uh a lot of it's about social engineering and kind of controlling the workers more and then doing this in an industry and a location where there's this history of big time racism and not too far before this, less than a century before this, literally slavery. And with a commodity, sugar, um, sugar cane, which for much of the history of its production has been the work of slaves. So in other words, despite their paternalism, in rhetoric, and sometimes, to be fair, in practice, and sometimes, you know, in a positive way, and sometimes actually providing uh, some good things for their workers. Despite this, Mott and the managers who worked for him running the day-to-day -day operations at USSC were willing to try and able to get away with labor practices in Florida in the 30s and 40s that they would never have tried and certainly wouldn't have ever gotten away with back up in Michigan, you know, running GM. Clarence Bidding, USSC's VP and eventually its president, gave speeches and published written material in which he argued that USSC's treatment of their workers, their laborers, was superior to that of competing foreign sugar cane growers. And I think it may have been true. But then again, considering who those poorer competitor nations were growing sugar, right? Generally, very, very poor countries with terrible human rights uh, situations and bad standard of living and quality of life. That's not necessarily saying very much that you're treating your workers better than them. So you find uh, Clarence Bidding saying nice-sounding things, kind of echoing the uh, paternalism of Charles Stuart Mott, and then you find a lot of evidence that the reality was very different, right? So Bidding would give speeches and publish written things in – he would say things like, a well-paid, contented working force makes for efficient operation, and – it is poor economy to use shacks for housing employees. The field worker and his family who reside in a good house are healthy and happy. I mean, that all sounds, you know, benevolent and it sounds sensible, but the reality seems to have been very different. In the 1930s, many who were among the kind of wealthier parts of Southern society were increasingly looking back nostalgically at the old antebellum plantation days, and they had an ideology that was simultaneously paternalist 
and highly racist. And Gail Hollander calls this attitude and this ideology, quote, backward-looking neo-plantationism, end quote. And the New Deal had a very, inter- a very interesting interaction with Southern kind of race relations, where New Deal policies in the South were, in some ways, trying to modernize the South and um, develop its economy more, but they were trying to do this without in any significant way challenging the race relations status quo. And so these backward-looking neo-plantationist attitudes, which if you can remember back to my series on slavery, um, you have this situation where there's all this paternalistic rhetoric amongst the old antebellum slave-owning class, and yet the reality is often very different. I think I said something somewhere in that series along the lines of, if you scratch a paternalist, you pretty quickly find a thug. And the same was the case for these neo-plantationists or whatever it was that uh, Hollander called them. So the New Deal is trying to increase development in the South and modernize it. And um, not only are they not significantly challenging race attitudes, in some ways, in many ways, really, that have been increasingly uh, brought to light. New Deal policies um, in the South were actually increasing or kind of bolstering the race status quo. The fact of the matter is that Southern Democrats in the 30s and 40s were a crucial part of FDR's so-called New Deal coalition, and FDR was much too slick of a politician to ever challenge their attitudes and policies on race in any real meaningful way. And so as a result, and I don't have time here to cover all of these in detail, um, but you can look some of these up easily if you don't already know about them. New Deal policies regarding housing, wages, agriculture, public works, jobs, programs, all that kind of stuff, all had the effect of, in some cases, flat-out harming. And uh, in best-case scenarios, um, just kind of disproportionately not helping the interests of black Americans. And this was especially true in the South. And just one famous example that's been talked about more recently is the practice of redlining, which basically made it so that blacks had to live only in certain neighborhoods and like just flat out couldn't buy a house elsewhere, even if they had money. So this is the context at which USSC is trying to deal with the problem of getting people to do this very difficult um, and often dangerous job of cutting sugarcane by hand with a machete, and yet still do it while paying these people very little. So Clarence Bidding's writings were published in pamphlets with green covers that were put out by USSC to promote kind of their point of view. And these became known as the Little Green Library. And in terms of propaganda, these rehashed a lot of the familiar arguments about sugar self-sufficiency for America as kind of a good thing in and of itself, and as part of a national security strategy, and also added increasing material comparing the conditions of laborers working in USSC's cane fields versus those who were elsewhere, especially in Cuba, and to a lesser extent, Puerto Rico and the Philippines. Gail Hollander says in regard to this that USSC, quote, aimed to position South Florida at the top of a moral hierarchy of sugar-producing regions, end quote. And so there was a lot of PR coming out of USSC about them as the more benevolent sugar-growing alternative to those damned furners. Another aspect of this public relations 
campaign um, on a different topic happened in 1939 when Clarence Bidding set up the Florida Cooperative Sugar Association, under which a number of small Florida sugar growers could have their sugar cane processed by USSC's facilities. And in the early 1940s, about 10% of the cane that came through USSC's facilities actually came from these smaller growers. And Hollander writes of the benefit of this to Big Sugar. Why would they be willing to do this to what is theoretically their competition? Hollander writes, quote, In the early 1940s, a relationship between Big Sugar, large-scale corporate operations, and Little Sugar, small-scale family operations, developed that persists into the 21st century and provides USSC with an important source of company propaganda and political leverage, end quote. And so even though it's, it's a rather small amount of the sugar that comes through their facilities, they're able to say and technically not be lying that the policies that benefit them also benefit these actual small growers. So in other words, this helped Big Sugar characterize its struggles as being in part about independent farmers trying to keep themselves afloat. Now, in relative proportional terms, it's largely BS, but of course, this whole cooperative um, association deal made it at least, you know, not completely a lie. Now, getting back to the labor problem, for its labor... USSC through the early 1940s relied mostly on African-American farm laborers who were quite plentiful at the time and often in need of work and willing to travel around to get it. And in particular, there were a large number of black field hands who kind of migrated seasonally throughout different parts of the South. Typically, they would move in kind of an east-west pattern within the South. Now, as you might expect, agricultural labor wages were lower in the South than in the rest of the country at this time, especially if one was black. Here we yet again find the U.S. government involved. The U.S. Employment Service managed the interstate farm labor force at the time. Black workers would be brought from other areas of the South when they weren't needed there in order to come work on the Florida sugar plantations. Generally, Sugar required the most labor at times when other types of agriculture, like cotton, did not. So it was a way for these agricultural workers to kind of not be seasonally unemployed. Beginning in 1937, the Migratory Farm Labor Division of the USDA set up labor camps for migrant agricultural workers. And its very first camps in the eastern U.S. were set up in Bell Glade, Florida, in the heart of the area that had been drained and turned into cane fields. Gail Hollander writes, quote, Company officials emphasized in their testimonies and publications the modern, paternalistic, and socially progressive character of USSC's sugarcane production, though the whole system depended on a racialized labor force with roots in the slave plantations of the past. The contradictions between USSC's dependence on cheap labor, disciplined by Jim Crow violence, and its corporate paternalism were never reconciled and would ultimately prove untenable. End quote. Federal investigations, including one conducted by the FBI, showed that the reality of USSC's recruitment and housing and overall treatment of its workers was very, very different from the company's benevolent paternalist self-image. 
USSC preferred to house its laborers in its so-called plantation villages, which allowed the company a lot more scrutiny of and control over the workers. The government agencies, which at the time were supposed to be overseeing the labor relations and conditions for USSC, instead, very predictably, got into a situation of regulatory capture in which the guys who were running those uh, government regulation agencies were basically ultimately working for the sugar company. Not, not always, you know, directly, literally, but you know, they expected to get paid off or they expected to get a cushy job um, in later years when they wanted to leave the government or whatever it was. So regulatory capture and the revolving door, which these were also covered by me back in episode 110 in 21 Key Concepts and Theories Part 2. Now, if you are one of the people that still uh, labors under the misapprehension that the government is this benevolent uh, shepherd just trying to take good care of its flock and whatever. And it's true from the point of view of like, they do eventually want to eat you or at least shear you of your wool. But if you still have this like friendly neighborhood idea of the government, you would think, wow, this heavily government um, regulated and controlled um, agricultural labor market must really uh, take good care of the workers and whatever. But in reality, it turns out it was pretty terrible. In fact, by the late 1930s, FBI field offices in the South were getting reports that indicated, in the words of Gail Hollander, quote, that USSC's strategies for recruiting and controlling black harvest labor, often aided by local law enforcement, included debt peonage, forced labor, and even killings, end quote. In fact, in 1942, a federal grand jury, I believe in Tampa, would indict USSC for violating the 13th Amendment, which, if you don't know, is the amendment of the U.S. Constitution that gets rid of slavery. That's not a common charge in U.S. legal history. Like, since that amendment was passed, there haven't been very many times that I'm aware of that the courts have said, oh, um, you know, this person or this company is violating someone's 13th Amendment rights. Now, what happened with that case was um, the best I've been able to dig up. Somehow it was dropped. The indictment was brought, but the case never really like, you know, went through because of some kind of technical issue regarding jury selection. But the fact that even in those, you know, highly racist times of the early 40s, that a grand jury in the South would bring an indictment against a company for violating black laborers, 13th Amendment rights. I mean, they wouldn't do that lightly. So, um, you know, having not delved into all the intimate details of that case, just because of the constraints of time, the fact that that indictment was even brought seems to me to be, you know, pretty significant. And so all this stuff started to come out. FBI investigations in 42 and 43 indicated that USSC used armed guards to control their workers, that they used corporal punishment for infractions, and that they threatened laborers, including physically, if they tried to leave. Not surprisingly, USSC began having significant labor shortages in the early 40s, in part because Rumors about all these alleged practices were circulating amongst black communities in the South, and also because um, the conditions of World War II often enticed or compelled blacks to go do something else. A man named Allison French, yes, a man named Allison, Allison French, who worked for the United States Employment Service at the time, helping USSC meet its labor needs, 
admitted that laborers were beaten and sometimes made to work 18-hour days, but also denied in the same statement that rumors about USSC mistreating its laborers were true. So yeah, these things have happened, but they don't mistreat their workers. Wait, what? Now, as this labor shortage started to happen, local law enforcement in South Florida used vagrancy and curfew laws against blacks in the area to help USSC meet its labor needs. So, for example, Belle Glade, a city in the sugar-growing area, had a curfew law that banned black people from being out and about after 10.30 p.m. And cops would increase their patrols for black people to pick up for breaking curfew whenever USSC let them know that they were short on workers. Now, as I kind of indicated a moment ago, aside from the negative info increasingly coming out about USSC's labor practices, World War II itself, both military conscription and better-paying war production jobs, began diverting a lot of African-American workers away from agricultural labor in the South in general. Many moved north, and even if they stayed in the South, they often, you know, got a job elsewhere. But still... Even in the 1940s, when so much of the rest of agriculture was mechanized, much of the field labor in Florida sugarcane fields wasn't really all that amenable to um, mechanization. And the reason for that was because of the kind of mucky nature of the soils in the area. And so as a result, if you look at what the sugarcane field um, field hands were actually doing physically, it wasn't a whole lot different than what their um, their forebears, you know, also black slaves brought over um, in most cases to Brazil and the Caribbean. What they had done, you know, they're out there by hand chopping cane and, um, you know, just brutal conditions. And Gail Hollander points this out and how these, you know, wealthy American corporate types were investing in basically this sort of an operation. Hollander writes, quote, In reality, the GM and Wall Street executives were invested in an industry in which key labor tasks were virtually the same as on 17th century plantations, end quote. Now, of course, theoretically, USSC could have just offered better wages and, you know, better treatment and conditions and tried to entice more workers that way. But of course, They weren't interested in doing that, and their man, Allison French, at the employment service was willing to help them avoid having to just offer better pay and conditions and so on. And in documents and and statements um, revolving around all this stuff, you find a common argument against offering these uh, laborers better paying conditions being made by not just company people, which you would expect, but also by Allison French of the um, Employment Service. So Gail Hollander writes, quote, In direct contradiction to economic theories of labor markets, but in line with the racism of the day, French argued for keeping wages for black agricultural workers low and repeatedly recommended a ceiling wage for piecework, end quote. Basically, um, Allison French was arguing that higher pay for blacks would simply make them work less. You know, in other words, if you doubled their pay, they would only work half as much. And so the argument was their pay had to be kept low in order to keep them working enough hours to meet the company's needs. Now, you know, not surprisingly, USSC agreed with this. And in testimonies to the government, USSC's personnel director, a man named M.E. Von Mock, said, and I quote, 
If he were to give the nigger more money than he gets now, he would leave two months sooner because he has too much money to spend. End quote. Yeah, you know, we, we would pay him more, but the problem is then they just won't work. The company also tried to mitigate um, things coming out about its labor practices by arguing that since they provided housing and health care on the premises to their workers, lower wages were okay, of course. Um, there's a lot of uh, problematic information about what those conditions were often really like. And it's also interesting, I think, that this is an echo of a lot of the paternalistic defenses of slavery that were given during the antebellum period by slave owners. Something, again, I talked a bit a while ago um, about when I was doing the American Slavery series, I guess about a year ago. This argument of, well, you know, yeah, it's true that we own slaves, but we actually treat them better uh, than than um, employers treat their, their quote-unquote free workers up in the north, you see, because they just pay them a wage and that's it, whereas we provide them with, you know, food and shelter and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, but it ain't voluntary. So that's kind of the problem. This is why people who understand the key importance of something being voluntary in the ethical dimension will still have a problem with slavery, even if the slaves aren't treated very well. And yeah, what's happening at USSC in the 30s and 40s, it's not complete slavery. But man, when you look into a lot of the deceptive practices they would use to entice workers, and then once they had them there working, you know, they wouldn't let them leave, or they threatened them if they wanted to leave or whatever. I mean, it's really, really, it's not slavery, but man, is it like dancing into the gray zone on the borders of involuntary servitude, at least in some cases. Now, since the company wanted a cheap and highly controllable labor force. And since they were having a hard time attracting African Americans to keep coming and working in the cane fields under these sorts of conditions, French and USSC, who, again, thanks to regulatory capture, he's basically kind of working on their behalf, they began to advocate a policy of bringing in laborers from the Caribbean to do the field work. They wanted to have enough labor at the key times when they needed it, they wanted a labor force that they could control very tightly, and they wanted a labor force that would work for very low wages. So bringing in workers from the Caribbean seemed like the solution. Basically, the idea was to import laborers from the Caribbean, obviously people from very poor countries who would going to be desperate for any job they could get, and bring them in under conditions wherein they'd be just very strictly controlled, where they could be quickly sent home if they caused even the slightest issue for the company. These foreign migrant laborers would even be exempt from the laws regarding things like minimum wages, housing, and unionization that were in place by the 40s. This provision for bringing in temporary foreign agricultural laborers under these very closely controlled um, arrangements was contained in Public Law 45, which was basically written by the agricultural industry. FDR signed the bill into law in April of 1943, even though his wife Eleanor had actually opposed it and encouraged him to veto it. The law authorized the U.S. government to let in temporary agricultural workers from the Caribbean and Latin America and said that those laborers, once they were brought in, they couldn't even leave the county in which they were employed without formal permission. The first importation of foreign workers to work on the cane fields was from the Bahamas. U.S. Navy doctors conducted physicals on them, and U.S. Army Air Corps cargo planes flew them to Florida. 
Once there, the Farm Security Administration and the United States Employment Service oversaw the program. Workers were, in fact, as intended, controlled very closely and could be deported for just about any reason at the whim of the employer. In years following, workers were brought in under this program from various uh, Caribbean countries, though after World War II, the military was no longer playing a role in the logistics. This practice was further laid out in Public Law 414, also known as the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952. Section H2 of this law dealt with foreign migrant agricultural workers, and these sorts of workers came to be known kind of just in colloquial slang as H2s. Hollander writes, quote, Through the H2 worker program, the Florida sugar industry was able to secure for decades a steady supply of blackfield labor from the former slave plantation economies of the Caribbean, end quote. Now, as I covered in the Draining the Swamp episode, the federal government also, via the Army Corps of Engineers, helped out the Florida sugar industry immensely by draining the shit out of the Everglades at the time. Um, in doing so, they created even more potential sugar-growing land and provided additional security for the sugar land that already existed, you know, to keep out that evil SOB Mother Nature. Interestingly, Clarence Bidding of USSC actually argued against too much additional new drainage at the time, and even cited some environmental rationales for not draining too much more. Though, of course, it seems reasonable to assume, because there's no evidence that I'm aware of that Bidding was a uh, committed environmentalist, that, of course, the main reason for him making these arguments wasn't about protecting Mother Nature as much as it was trying to limit future potential competitors of USSC. If you'll recall from the Draining the Swamp episode, the so-called Central and Southern Florida Flood Control Project, or CNSF, the Corps of Engineers report setting out the big post-World War II drainage operation, the CNSF defined the so-called Everglades Agricultural Area, or EAA, as the land immediately south of Lake Okeechobee, which of course included USSC's cane fields. The federal government, meaning U.S. taxpayers at large, of course, would pay about 85% of the cost of implementing this CNSF project. Socialized or dispersed costs but of course, concentrated and private benefits. So that's going on during and immediately after World War II. And then, of course, the war itself had an effect on sugar globally and then by extension in Florida. As with World War I, World War II produced shortages of sugar that the U.S. sought to fill with sugar produced domestically and abroad. And again, as with World War I, especially the U.S. looked to Cuba. Believe it or not, Cuba actually declared war on the Axis powers after Pearl Harbor. That's how tight they were to the U.S. at the time. Again, my argument is that from the Spanish-American War through the rise of Fidel Castro, essentially 60 years, Cuba should be considered an informal colony of the American empire. Now, because of wartime shortages and rationing, the war temporarily set back the growth in sugar consumption that had been going on for over a 100 years in the U.S. However, World War II still, when you look at the long term and the big picture, ultimately would boost sugar consumption because GIs were provided with huge amounts of it. 
the government still kind of, as I mentioned in regard to World War I, this was still their thinking. They still apparently believe that candy and other high sugar foods were good for soldiers' performance. And as a result, chocolate and many other candies and things were very common and widespread in soldiers' rations. Coca-Cola and Pepsi both took extraordinary measures to make sure their products were very easily and cheaply available to servicemen around the world. Sometimes these companies would even take a loss in the short run in order to provide the soldiers with their soft drink. So, of course, then they'd get addicted and there'd be brand loyalty and all this sort of thing. This is very common, by the way, um, in World War II. A lot of times, you know, whatever cigarettes the GI was issued, he'd smoke them for the rest of his life. Whatever magazines uh, he was given, he would then subscribe to after the war. And all the companies that made products that were issued or sold to the soldiers all understood this. So during and after the war, both companies, Pepsi and Coke, increased their international operations substantially, first to serve U.S. GIs abroad, and after that to continue to serve the civilians in those countries once um, the war was over and the economies of, you know, for example, Western Europe and Japan started to come back. This led to Coca-Cola in particular becoming one of the most well-known companies and logos on planet Earth, and as a universal symbol of kind of America. And after the war, there was an uptick specifically in people interested in growing sugar in Florida, and several new sugar-growing operations were set up in the immediate post-war years. For example, one of them that continued for I think up until the present, technically, or at the very least it merged with something else eventually, was called the Okilanta Growers and Processors Cooperative, which set up a mill in Palm Beach County in 1947. And some of the men who were involved with Okilanta um, had previous experience with sugar in Puerto Rico. In the post-war era, a lot of trends led to increased sugar consumption per capita. So, for example... The consumption of fruit juices, often with a ton of added sugar, took off in the post-war years, and it was sold as a healthy alternative to other drinks. One of the reasons that juice was consumed more after the war was the invention of frozen juice concentrate during the war. So, you know, people are, they're, not only are they consuming more candy, more Coke, more Pepsi, they're consuming more juice. It's healthy. It's natural. It has, you know, 50 teaspoons of sugar added to it. As if it's not enough that you're already isolating the most sugar-intense part of the fruit and, you know, getting rid of most of the, the fiber and all that stuff that's part of when you actually eat a fruit. Also, the post-World War II years were really the beginning of widespread availability of sugary breakfast cereals, usually marketed heavily to children. For years, believe it or not, the scientists at the major cereal companies had actually resisted marketing sugary breakfast cereals to children out of ethical concerns for their health. I know it's, it's hard to believe, but there apparently were people with some scruples actually working at the cereal companies. But by the post-World War II era, those guys were gone or they had changed their minds. And it was open season in the post-war years on getting sugary cereals into kids. The first sugar cereal after World War II was Ranger Joe, which was very quickly followed by better-known ones such as Sugar Crisp, Sugar Corn Pops, Frosted Flakes, Sugar Smacks, Cocoa Krispies, Kicks, Tricks, and Cocoa Puffs. And of course, many of the most famous and best-loved cartoon characters of the post-war years were basically invented to sell sugary cereal to children. 
watching cartoons on Saturday morning. So, you know, Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, the Flintstones, Rocky, and Bullwinkle, to name just a few, basically were invented to pump sugar cereal into kids. Mmm, and a bowl of cereal with a glass of juice, marketed and perceived as a healthy breakfast. These things greatly added to American sugar consumption. And the Cold War itself would have a big impact on Florida's sugar bowl and the rise of the cane kingdom. While maybe not as important as other things like petroleum, sugar was still considered an important geostrategic commodity in the Cold War era. And in the Cold War years, the political battles between different types and regions of sugar producers and between different people and institutions within the federal government over all these policies, these things grew even more complicated than before. Within domestic politics, the different sugar interests, the different you know cane growers, beet growers, and from different parts of the country, they continued to lobby for things that were favorable to their particular interests, and a lot of this was focused on the House Agricultural Committee, which has more power than any other part of Congress over agriculture uh, policy. In the early days of the Cold War, the Truman administration set up the National Security Resource Board as part of the National Security Council. The NSRB would have an entire sugar committee, which was basically composed of some top men from the industry. And it was supposed to kind of craft American sugar policy in line with Cold War geostrategic concerns. However, because some of those men on the committee at the time were heavily invested in Cuban sugar, Cuba still at that time not being yet under Castro, the committee concluded that Cuba was absolutely crucial to U.S. sugar security. So they weren't quite willing to go full autarky. But there were some individuals involved with the sugar committee who were more tied into domestic production than to Cuban sugar. So at the time, also arguing on the grounds of national security, those who were more invested in domestic production argued in favor of increased self-sufficiency and therefore in favor of, in particular, reducing Cuba's sugar quota in the U.S. market. So you've got this battle where people who are heavily invested in Cuban sugar production, Americans who are invested in that, they want to keep Cuba's quota the same or even try to increase it. Whereas, of course, domestic sugar producers want the opposite. And um, interestingly, the State Department came down on the side favorable to Cuba. The State Department in the late 40s and through the 50s wanted to keep Cuba's sugar quota at least the same, if not more, because they were looking at it through a Cold War prism. And they worried that by cutting Cuba's sugar quota for the U.S. market, that this would cause Cuba economic problems and thereby cause a lot of political problems for the regime of Fulgencio Batista, who was the kind of right-wing um, Banana Republic dictator who was considered at that time a key U.S. ally in the Cold War. So, as of 1955, about 53% of America's sugar was grown domestically, and about 33% of it came from Cuba. Hearings in Congress on sugar would basically turn into domestic producers on one side versus spokesmen for Cuban sugar and the State Department on the other. 
Senator George Smathers of Florida was the only prominent Florida politician who at the time was not supportive of protectionist policies for domestic sugar because he, like the State Department, was concerned about the effects of American sugar protectionism on Cuba and other Latin American and Caribbean countries and what this would mean for kind of overall global politics. Now, even though Cuban sugar producers, including ones that were owned by Americans, and domestic sugar producers were fighting over the quota and its details, they were simultaneously working together and teaming up when it came to producing propaganda that was designed to reduce, sorry, to reverse a reduction in U.S. sugar consumption. Now, this was a trend that was actually starting to happen in the 50s. And part of it was because of people worried about sugar being fattening, and part of it was because artificial sweeteners were coming around. Now, they had been, some artificial sweeteners have been around for longer, but they were becoming much more um, widespread and more palatable by the 50s. So, for example, the sugar growers would team up to produce propaganda demonizing artificial sweeteners and trying to convince American women in particular that sugar was a food that would help them get slim. They even published propaganda that explicitly said, I kid you not, that high blood sugar levels were good for you, and that high blood sugar levels would reduce your appetite and reduce your weight. By the way, next episode I'll talk a bit about the sugar industry's largely successful efforts to shield sugar from the criticisms of nutritionists as being a major health risk and to kind of deflect that criticism instead mostly to fat. Well, anyway, in 1956, Congress passed um, a new version of the Sugar Act, which kind of tweaked things. It didn't dramatically change the overall system, but it did reduce Cuba's share of the sugar quota a bit and then increased Florida's share of the sugar quota. The Cuban government and many people in Cuba were pissed about this, and it led to increased troubles in the country and led to, among other things, increased support for a crazy rebel named Fidel Castro. In December of 1958, the Eisenhower administration started thinking that Batista needed to go. They wanted to try to get him to step down because they were having doubts about his ability to continue to successfully operate as America's sock puppet in Cuba. Interestingly, their intermediary, the man whom they used to relay this message to Batista, hey, we think you ought to go, was a very interesting figure from this kind of shady corner of the Cold War, a man named William Pauley, and that's spelled P-A-W-L-E-Y. Now, I'm going to talk a bit about him here, and I'll probably talk more about him in the next episode, but he's an American who's a very interesting guy, an American who'd basically grown up in Cuba and was heavily invested there and elsewhere in Latin America in sugar, among other things, and who was also friends with none other than then-CIA director Alan Dulles. Of course, despite Eisenhower via William Pauley encouraging Batista to step down, Batista did not step down, and as a result, in January of 1959, Fidel Castro was able to seize power in Cuba. Batista and many other wealthy elite Cubans very quickly fled the country, and most of them ended up in Florida. 
William Pauley would play a key role in helping some of these Cubans transition very successfully from Cuban sugar into Florida sugar. As you might expect, the Florida Sugar Bowl would get a huge boost beginning in the early 60s due to the fallout of Castro's revolution. In June of 1960, Congress passed a bill which said the president could end the Cuban sugar quota if he chose to do so. Now, the State Department and the U.S. ambassador to Cuba actually wanted to keep Cuba's sugar quota as it was for the time being, despite Castro's revolution. And their thinking was, if we keep doing business with Cuba, we can then use the sugar quota as leverage against Castro's regime. In other words, if we're still buying a lot of their sugar, we have the bargaining chip of, hey, you know, don't do X or else we'll stop buying your sugar. They thought, well, if you just preemptively end it now, then you lose that leverage. But despite the feelings of the State Department and the U.S. ambassador to Cuba in July of 1960, Ike went ahead and cut Cuba's sugar quota of the U.S. market to zero. The U.S. ambassador to Cuba said that the president, by doing this, was basically pushing Castro into the arms of the Soviets. Now, the breakdown of the U.S. sugar quota as of 1959 was as follows. About 25% of American sugar came from domestically grown sugar beets. About 20% came from cane grown in Hawaii and Puerto Rico combined. About 33% came from Cuban cane. And only about 7% came from Florida and Louisiana combined. Domestic sugar producers in general, and those in Florida and Louisiana in particular, really wanted to seize the opportunity that had fallen into their lap in the form of Castro to increase their share of the American sugar market. And again, you don't do this in this sort of an economic arrangement by simply making sugar better or cheaper or whatever. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You do it by playing politics. You do it by political entrepreneurship. Now, again, not surprisingly, after Ike ended the Cuban sugar quota, the Soviet Union began buying way more Cuban sugar than they previously had. And Castro became increasingly close to the Soviets. Prior to the end of the Cuban quota, Cuba had always performed the function of filling any shortfalls in the U.S. domestic sugar production quotas, if and when they occurred. So, for example, during wartime or during other times when, for some reason, domestic production was down. But after 1959, it couldn't do this anymore. The House of Representatives commissioned a study on sugar in 1961 that concluded that world production of sugar was actually rising faster than consumption. And yet, that same report also harped on Florida's potential to increase its share of American sugar production. Around this time period, in the early 60s, investment in Florida sugar significantly increased, and some entire sugar mills began to be moved from Louisiana to Florida. Land prices in the Everglades agricultural area boomed. And one source of investment in Florida sugar that was significant in the early 60s were wealthy Cuban exiles, those who'd fled to Florida as soon as Castro came to power. And one key family that had already been one of the top Cuban sugar-growing families before Castro's revolution were the Fan Hools. And several key members of that family moved to Florida immediately after Castro's takeover. 
Next time, we'll pick up the story of what happened to sugar growing in the U.S. in general, and specifically um, looking at the rise of the cane kingdom in Florida in the decades following Castro's revolution. And the Fan Hul family are going to be a huge part of that story. Also, just looking ahead, after I do part two of Rise of the Cane Kingdom, I am going to next be doing the Grunt's Eye perspective of the American Civil War. So, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for those. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in DangerousHistoryPodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so. And you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best, most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.